Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Tanahazi Coates, a national correspondent for The Atlantic and the author of the books The Beautiful Struggle, Between the World and Me, and now We Were Eight Years in Power in American Tragedy. In the course of these books and his work for The Atlantic, Coates has become the most well-known commentator and writer on racial issues in America. His latest examines Barack Obama's eight years in office and how they gave rise to the election of an American demagogue. Tanahazi Coates joins me now. Thanks for having me, Isaac. If uh, if average Americans listening to this podcast knew what uh, knew what we had to go through to get you on the air uh, in the last hour, they would be they would be grateful for what they're about to listen to. I think <laughs> it wasn't that bad. Um, well, so uh, listen, um, you're on you're on this book tour now. You've been on book tours before. Uh, you're obviously at a different point in your career than you were on those previous book tours at a different level of uh, fame. W- what has this book tour been like and has it been different than than the previous ones you've taken, the way people respond to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, it's been more people than with Between the World and Me. Um, and I generally am not a huge book tour person. Um, you know, I tend to be a pretty home family person. Uh, so I'm not I'm not a huge book tour person. So it's been more people, uh, which is great. You know what I mean? Because it means it's more people actually reading the work. Um, but there's always this tension, you know, with me where I'm like really happy that you know folks are engaging. Um, I really enjoy talking to people about the work, but at the same time, it's like this lack of intimacy. I mean, the crowds have been. I mean, I, I guess I must sound like a huge asshole. There's been a really large crowds, and I'm complaining about that fact. Um, no, no, but it's a different experience than when you're at a small bookstore with 25 people show up and you can kind of talk to each person individually. That's right. That's right. That's right. I went on tour uh, for the payback of Beautiful Struggle in 2009, and I did a reading in San Francisco at the Fry Building, and like it was one of those cases where about 25 people showed up, and it was the best reading in my mind I ever gave. So I, I was just wondering, I mean, my, my colleague Jamel Bowie wrote in a review of your book that... Um, you've sort of become a symbol as well as a writer. And so I was just, I was wondering if sort of going forward, you were worried or cognizant of what it would mean that, you know, you are in this different position as a writer and what it meant for your writing, if anything. Yeah, I was, I was aware of that. I was aware of that, you know, between the world and me was a, was a <laughs> education on that. Um, and I, I think like for a long time, you know, the job of writers, the challenge was, you know, the writing. Um, and that's still a challenge, but, you know, at this point in my career, who knows what it will, will be five years from now, even two years from now. But at this point in my career, um, there are extra challenges. You, you know what I mean? You become something to, some, to like, a, a group of people. And that is vaguely linked to your writing, but it's not exactly linked to your writing. Um, and that's What, a what else is thing. it linked to? It's linked to the politics of the time. Um, is linked to, you know, uh, whatever need people have, you know, among themselves. Um, it is linked to, frankly, the petty jealousies of other writers um, and other scholars and other academics. Um, it, you know, you can write the same thing, and when, you know, because I know, because I did it, I did it. <laughs> and when nobody's watching, um, or when a relatively small group of people are watching, you know, they interact one way with the work, and then when large numbers of people start watching, people begin interacting with the fact that large numbers of people are actually watching the work, as opposed to, you know, just the work itself. Um, and that, that just creates a, a, you know, a totally, totally different layer. 
And has that been, do you find that frustrating or invigorating in some way or what? I found it incre- incredibly frustrating after Between the World and Me. Um, I find it less frustrating now. Uh, I find it, I still find it frustrating sometimes, but basically, you, you know, uh, if you're a writer and you become, I just, I'm like shrinking away from even saying this, but if you're a writer and you become famous, like you don't control your name or you just don't, you don't control it. Like it really is so, you know, much out of, out of your hands. And, you know, there's almost, there's, and I guess that's true of any piece of writing once it's published, but it really is like true to a, you know, a larger level for me right now, as I, and I must stress this at this point, you know, because things change. People decide they're interested in other things. Um, but, but I don't know, like I've been writing for over 20 years now, you know, and in the past four years or so, you know, a tremendous shift happened. And I think before that, like as a writer, like any other writer, what you're trying to prepare yourself for is to expend all the energy that you have and put all your passion into a piece and for no one to care. And the big challenge of writing is being okay with that. You know, um, but you don't prepare yourself for people to care, (laughs) for the opposite. Um, But that requires some preparation. It's interesting you said about not having your name. I mean, there is this 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 sort of final step that some writers like Orwell or Kafka go to, where their name literally gets kind of um, uh, appropriated for. Yeah, you know, yeah, and we're which not is amazing. At that yeah, but it would be like, man, I, between the world and me, came out. I would like cut on Saturday Night Live and be watching some, you know, skit, and it would show up, you know, and like that book became buzzword for a certain kind of white person. Um, I found that like enormously frustrating, you know, um, because Between the World and Me emerged out of me trying to process the murder of of a friend of mine. And it was like what happened was it became this, you know, whole other conversation about it where it was like, oh, you know, leave aside whether this book is good or bad, leave aside whether this book does what it, you know, claims to be trying to do. Um, What's up with white people reading this book? <laughs> you know, but, what's up with that? What, what's you know? the? I mean, as a white person who read the book, I mean, don't don't. What's the alter? I mean, I, I see what you're saying, but don't you sort of want people? Don't want white people to read yeah, the book? Yeah, no, there, no, exactly. I I never was like white people don't read my book. I never was like that, and I don't think any. You know, I think like what's behind that is like or what? Like, what's the? You're exactly right. What is the alternative? Um, I have, maybe they're out there, but I have yet to meet a writer that wants to, you know, ultimately, and I'm saying even with the problems I've laid out, you know, says, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to reach more people. Um, you know, it's like a piece in the book where I, you know, I, I look at that, uh, essay written long ago by, by Adolf Reed, you know, and it's a huge critique of Cornell West and the public intellectuals that were around at that time. Um, and it's basically critiquing the role of, of interpreter for white people. Uh, like the black writer who interprets for white people. And I, I think like there's a lot that's really important in that piece, you know, in terms of like remembering that you're writing from a, you know, a, a particular place that you're not performing. But at the same time, what black writer um, of any, you know, sort of, you know, note is not on some level interpreting for white people just because of the demographics, you know, that critique itself was published not in the Amsterdam News, but but in the Village Voice. Um, the majority of people reading that, you know, um, critique of interpreting are white, and they themselves are getting an interpretation of, you know, a black public intellectual, Cornel West, by another one. 
So, I mean, it's sort of like what, 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 like, what is the world in which you aim for a larger audience in a country where you hail from a minority experience and most of the reason not white? What is that? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You mentioned uh, you mentioned some of the critiques of your book that you thought were petty. Have there been any critiques of this book or of your writing in the last couple of years that you have made you sort of sit up and think, oh, that's an interesting critique? Yeah, probably the one that I think of the most. And um, and, and, and I should be clear, I don't think the, you know, I actually think the what do, you know, what, what's up with white people. I think people were actually genuinely shocked by that. Like, I think there were some people who had a genuine question about that, you know, where it wasn't like a, you know, a petty thing. Um, you know, I think when I think about wait, wait, wait. Power, sorry, what? Sorry, what? Yeah. You, you were shocked by what? I, I think there were people who legitimately were asking, like who legitimately were shocked at white people were reading the book. Like I think there were some people who were not being petty at all, but generally were genuinely shocked that given the subject matter of the book, well, that it received such a. I would know, assume any everybody should have been shocked by how many white people read that book. I mean, it would be hard to right. predict that. Right, right. So I don't think, I just want to be clear, I don't think engagement yeah. with that question is necessarily petty. Oh, I thought um, I was, the petty was referring to something you said earlier about uh, sometimes people pet, pettily respond to the book yes. you were talking about. Yes. But but anyway, uh, sorry, long digression. Yeah, so, all the time. I mean, all the time. I mean, and all through the book are some, are some of those critiques, you know, um, the Bill Cosby piece, not, you know, really being, you know, straight up and, and direct about the fact that you were, you know, profiling a dude. You know, attempting to write about dude, a dude who, at that point, you know, some seven or eight women had accused of sexual assault. Uh, the uh, uh, part in case for reparations, where Israel is invoked in a kind of half-handed, you know, a kind of halfway way that doesn't really engage, you know, w- 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 with the question, and you know, doesn't, you know, in any um, real way. And I'm talking about even before the piece was actually written, like, like there's no real thought given to what, say, the Palestinian people would have, would have thought about using that example, um, or whether that example was, was the best one or not. Um, those are the two, like, like that I, I think about a lot. And I think, like, I think about the Palestinian one a lot because um, I have, you know, like, when you write, um, when I write, I, I try to, like, be able to win. Like, I try to have... You know, and by which I mean for, to my own satisfaction. I try to be as confident as I can in, 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 in my beliefs as possible. You know, um, and I have like a bunch of, you know, fellow writers, you know, who I know, who, you know, are really, you know, drawing parallels between the African-American experience and, you know, the Palestinian experience. And I haven't yet, and I haven't really been able to just because I just don't, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's, you know, like if you go in, you really, really want to be able to win. You know, um, even though, like, my writing, I think, sometimes seems radical, it's actually quite cautious. You know, I'm, I'm very ginger about where I'm going. Um, I, I would, uh, I, I wanted to read you one line in this Melvin Rogers review of your book in the Boston Review, where he says, um, yet Coates appears simply to invert U.S. exceptionalism, replacing it with the equally fatalistic idea that the United States is fundamentally broken. In a world where the good or bad is fated to happen, faith and hope have no foothold. This ultimately weakens our resolve and undermines our ability to take seriously the idea of, quote, an American experiment. 
The reason I, I, I read that is I thought that that quote sort of nicely summarized what has kind of been a general critique from a bunch of people that you're essentially too pessimistic about change in America. And I'm sure this is a, you know, a critique that you've thought about a lot. And I'm just curious what you make of it now after, after. Yeah. I mean, I guess that does. So that's so weird. It's not my job to strengthen anybody's resolve to take anything about this country seriously. Like I'm, I'm a writer, you know, like I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer. Um, I, you know, it's, it's funny. Cause I, I hear, like, like, I think about that, and I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know about fundamentally broken, but there's a fundamental problem at the heart of, you know, this country. But that doesn't make this country particularly original. You know, I mean, I haven't studied as many states as I would like to, but I'm pretty sure, you know, like, I, you know, from my, you know, travels and the ones I have studied, it's not unusual to have, you know, a premise on which a state is founded and to have you know, deep problems in that premise that continue to recur in that state's history and actually threaten its existence all the way through. So I don't find America particularly remarkable in, in that sense. I don't find America uniquely evil or anything like that. You know, you know, um, That's I'm an American, so I write about America. And so, you know, I think like race, you know, uh, has, has a place in that. But I don't, I just, when I hit it, I don't know how to respond to that. Well, I, I guess um, I, I, I totally agree. It's not your job to say, you know, we're making progress here. We're making progress there. You but know. It's, you know what, Isaac? It's not even that. I mean, it's like, in what world is it the job of writers, historians, intellectuals, students of politics, history, um, sociology, anthropology, et cetera, to strengthen the resolve of the nation. Well, but, 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 but I guess I would say put aside whether it's your job or not. It's, I agree it's not your job. But but just the, the, the critique itself, I think, is that um, some people want to say America is exceptional and we're this great nation. And by by basically saying that progress is so hard or impossible that you're sort of inverting that and saying, you know, America is special because it's so fucked up in some way. Right, and that's, and that's what I'm saying. That's the yeah. inversion. The inversion would be America is exceptionally fucked up. Hard to argue, hard to argue with that, that now. Yeah, I mean, no, but I would never, no, I would never say that. I would never say, I would never say America is exceptionally fucked up. I, I would never say that compared to, uh, listen, I, you know, I, I, I spent a year abroad in France, right? Um, I get back to France as much as I can. I love France. I love the culture. I adore it. But I love it the way I... And I love it and adore it the way I love and adore the South in America. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? Like, I recognize that there's something, you know, particularly, I mean, if we're going to use this word broken there, you know, um, in terms of, you know, for instance, their ability uh, to look at people who don't necessarily, who aren't white, frankly, you know, and come from, you know, uh, previous colonies and accept them as actual French people. Um, like, I, I see that. Like that's a very very real thing, and so um, I don't I don't think America's uniquely fucked up. I'm pretty sure if I spent in any any period of time in any state, well, I, I would eventually begin to see the you know the, the fault lines. Um, so I don't I don't know why people I don't I don't I don't know where the exceptional part comes from. That's what I'm saying. I don't know where that comes from. 
Well, let me ask you this, though. I mean, so you say, which, you know, I think is right, that you don't specifically have a role as um, to say, you know, things are going to be okay or whatever, whatever bromides that people Mm -hmm. want you to offer. Um, It does seem to me, and correct me if, if you think this is wrong, that you think you do have a role and maybe role is the wrong thing, but that, you know, there are a lot of people in the United States for many years who've patted themselves on the back for saying we're making progress. Things are getting mm-hmm. better. And that mm-hmm. you do have some role in saying whether that's literally true about, you know, GDP figure, or, you know, uh, poverty figures among African-Americans or the end of segregation or whatever it is, that that is so insufficient that it is important that people set, step back and say, no, that is insufficient. And you do have a role in saying that. No, I, I, you know, how I would think about it is like this. Um, I feel like I come from a community who, wherein, you know, we have our own ways of articulating and thinking about the world and thinking about politics in America and thinking about our place in America. Um, and that is, or has been, you know, for a long period of time, in conflict with a larger narrative. Um, so much so that, you know, you could begin to feel like you're crazy. For instance, you know, you take, like, like in the case for reparations, the, the, the feeling that I think a large number of black people have uh, in relation to this country is that they've been robbed, even if they can't really articulate the how and the why of that. They, they feel it. And I feel like more than anything, like, my job is to say to uh, black folks who lived as I did, who came up as I did, you're not wrong. You're not crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what you're seeing is real. And here's the, you know, reporting, here's the research. Here's the science, you know, um, to make it as part of and as respectable within the broader uh, dialogue and conversation of American politics as anything else. And in many ways to make it more respectable, you know, than, you know, say folks who, you know, claim the Civil War wasn't about slavery, for instance. Um, And if I were to make that, you know, into a broader American role, I would say to open up the dialogue. I would say to open up the window of what is possible to talk about. You know, in the context of this, Trump is interesting, and it's been interesting to watch you wrestle with him as a figure, because I think that um, for a lot of people, uh, it's it's sort of a dividing line between highlighting the ways in which he's unique and uniquely awful and came after our first black president and what, you know, why that is. And also saying that, you know, part of his ideology has been a through line of American history. And so there's a little bit of a tension there. And I mean, I'm just wondering... How you mm-hmm. how you've approached that tension? As him is both unique and you know not unique. Yeah, I mean, I, it's like um, you know you can have certain tendencies that result in a particularly unique fuck up. <laughs> and so I think the tendencies that would make a Donald Trump possible were always there and have been there for a very very long time. Uh, you know the, the things that would threaten the possibility of a Donald Trump, but you change one variable, and that, in this case, I think, was the election of, of, of an African-American president. Um, and you get a Donald Trump. Um, that, that's the way I reconcile. In other words, um, I do think as a figure, he actually is unique. I think as a figure, I don't, I don't think there's been a president like Donald Trump before. Um, but I think the tendencies, the undergrowth, for instance, the idea of birtherism, you know, which is rooted in the old idea that black people aren't actually citizens of the United States. Of America. Like, that's old. You know what I mean? A lot of the, you know, sort of insults and the things and the way people saw Obama were not particularly new. Food stamp president. You know what I mean? Like, that's rooted in old ideas about black people. Um, but the fact of, you know, like, like the, the actual response, you know, the actual thing that actually happened, I think really was unique. I think this was new. 
how do you feel about it 10 months in versus, um, Oh man, same way as I felt about it when it happened. I thought it was a, I mean, I, just, I thought this was, it was a disaster. You know, I thought it was an absolute, absolute disaster. And I thought that, um, you don't think he's growing in office? Um, but no, I mean, <laughs> I, I, no, I didn't mean so much. Do you still think it's a disaster? I, I have some idea about that. I mean, has anything about his appeal or what he represents in kind of um, American history changed at all for you in the last 10 months? Mm-mm, not really. No, not not really. I mean, it's deepened, if anything. I mean, because like, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, the thing with, with, with his chief of staff, I mean, that is, I mean, I feel like that's pretty much in line with how he ran. I, I want to ask you this question because I think, you know, one thing about your writing, which we which we talked about, was kind of the the skepticism for the skepticism about positive change and how hard that is in a society. I was wondering, in terms of your own life, um, people in your own life, and whether you feel like you know people uh, who have changed about race and racial issues, the way they think about it or deal with it, and uh, what if there's a larger lesson there for for the way societies can or can't change. People who've changed. If my dad were on the phone, he probably would say he's changed. Who's changed? Oh, your dad. My dad. Yeah, my dad. My dad. I'm not the best to outline that, but it, it, you know, he probably would say he. Well, I mean, the easy thing is he was a Black Panther, and I don't think he. I know, you know, he would not, you know, be picking up rifles and patrolling the police today. Um, it's just a different way of. Dealing with society. I mean, I've changed, right? I mean, I think that's, you know, that's definitely all through between the world and me. And, uh, you know, we were eight years in power. You know, I went, you know, as a young man at Howard from a kind of quasi-black nationalist to, you know, somebody who, you know, really interrogated that and became what I would, you know, see today as a pretty center-left liberal. Um, and then, you know, mutated from that into something, I think, you know, during the last eight years that's, a, that's more radical. You know, um, as I state in the book, you know, I did not start off as a supporter of reparations. You know, I pretty much was a class first sort of guy. You know, um, I didn't really see any reason to, if you could address, you know, and as many people say, if you could address the problems of racism, you know, through the problems of class and helping more people, why not do that? Um, it only slowly became apparent to me that, you know, the problem was actually much deeper, um, that you, in fact, could, could not do that, that there were particular things about black people in this country that, you know, had to be addressed. I, you know, that was a change for me. Um, I, I don't know if you mean the more uh, sort of someone who starts off as a bigot and then, you know, becomes something else. I kind of did um, mean that, but your answer was 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 interesting. I mean, I, I guess not necessarily even a bigot, but just someone, you know, that, you know, how old are you now? Uh, 42. I mean, you know, people, white people that you've known for a long time. and Nah, because uh, I didn't know white people like that. I mean, I haven't. You know what I mean? Like, my first, I didn't make my first white friends until I went to work, you know, as a journalist when I was 20 years old, you know. Um, and those were not the sort of, like, at that point, from where I was coming from, it's like I would have would have been around a bunch of racist white people. Well, I guess, I mean, even like in our industry, um, 10 years ago, the type of articles that are being written about race... Okay, that's true. At, at Slate, at The Atlantic, at The New Yorker, yeah. would not have appeared 10 years ago. And I'm wondering that's how true. that may not mean a ton in the long in the scheme of things, but I'm wondering how much you think. Well, you said that's true. So what what, you know, how important do you think that is or noticeable? I think it is important. I think it is important. I mean, I'm somebody who was in college you know, uh, during the 90s and, you know, read the, read a lot of the New Republic, you know, not all of it, but read it quite a bit and was, 
you know, you know, read the Atlantic, read the New Yorker, read, you know, those sort of political journals where, you know, I, I write today and the bandwidth of like what you could say about the black experience in this country, I thought was pretty narrow. Um, and it's clear that that's opened up quite a bit. And not only has it opened up, I would say that some of the stronger writers are, you know, and I put, you know, Jamel in here, you know, I put Jelani Cobb in here. I put, you know, Nicole Hannah Jones in here are people who I don't know that they could have existed 20 years ago. Like it just, it just wasn't there. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's a result of two things. I think, um, that is the the work that academics, particularly historians, started you know putting in who came out came of age under the civil rights movement bearing fruit. Um, I think you have journalists who are really familiar with that work and cite that work and know that work, and that gives them a kind of foundation and gravitas, uh, a basis, you know, uh, to to talk and to argue and write. Uh, and I think the second thing is really the, the the destruction of gatekeepers and gatekeeping as a function. Um, in, in, in media, I think, you know, those two things together, probably with some other factors, but those two things specifically, I think it really opened up, you know, what you can say. It'd be very interesting to look at other groups. Like, are there arguments that, that you know, are made, for instance, around gender that, you know, were not there 20 years around LGBT issues, which we didn't even call that back then, that, you know, um, that have opened up? I don't know, but certainly, you know, in terms of, you know, the realm of black folks, white supremacy, race, racism, whatever, yes, it's a definitely a more open space. I was wondering when you look back on the last 20 years to use your time frame of the gay rights movement and the success that it had politically, both in terms of changing laws and changing minds. Um, do, you, do you think that there are any lessons there for the African-American struggle for equality? Nah, not really. Not really. Um, and that's no, you know, obviously disrespect to the LGBTQ, you know, struggle in this country. Um, but I don't think... Um, like, I'm, I guess, you know, I know this isn't, I don't think this is the popular opinion of Black Lives Matter, but I actually think they've been tremendously effective. Um, it does not look effective to people, but um, I, you know, remember a time and really come from a community where things like Ferguson would happen and the attorney general did not go show up, and, you know, say we're going to launch an investigation, you know, of the entire police department here. Um, that just, that really was not the response. You know, um, is their ability to get people to focus and look and see. And I, I think like, you know, and through the advance of technology a lot, you know, to get, you know, large numbers of white people to really view uh, police brutality, you know, as an actual thing that happens. You know, I, I think actually it's been pretty big, you know. Um, so I don't know. You know, I'm not an activist, but I, I don't, you know, really see much. I think what happens, you know, much in terms of, you know, what needs to be improved. I think what, what happens a lot of times with activism is people push, 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 push. And every once in a while, a generation runs into, you know, a situation where the doors open and they push through. But those are the rare moments, you know. Um, and the moments before that, people are just pushing up against a wall and nothing feels like it's changing. But something with in terms of Black Lives Matter in your mind has changed or is changing underneath our feet. <laughs> See, I'm not so sure. I think one. I think like the. I think technology changed. I think you had Twitter. I think you had the. You know, I think you had the the camera phone. You know, um, I think much as I think like during the civil rights movement, I don't know that the leaders of the civil rights movement were you know any more ingenious than the people that came before them. But I do know that you know the technology around media changed big time, so that you could actually see you know folks being beaten on the Edmund Pattis Bridge. 
Um, and that was a particular thing. And that the politics at the time were different because, you know, you had a Cold War, you know, and folks had to think about how this, you know, this footage of Freedom Riders, you know, buses being bombed out, et cetera, how that was playing internationally, what it was saying, you know, about the country to the rest of the world. So, you know, had the leaders changed? I, I don't know. So then what's, what, so sure. what's the advice if someone says, you know, I want to become an activist, why should I do it? What's, what's the answer to that? I probably wouldn't answer that question. I probably would direct them to other activists. <laughs> I'm a writer. I can tell you how, you know, why to do that. And, I, and I'm not like the, I'm saying that like the kind of person, at least for me, like I just, I'm not an activist. I don't have what it takes to like. Right. Like I almost like, like physically recoil at the idea of being one. Like, you know what I mean? Like I just, I'm so not angled that way at all. No, I know. But I, I mean, like if, if a kid comes up to you and says, you know, a family friend or something and says, I want to make the world a better place. I want to go into activism for civil mm-hmm. rights causes. I mean, I assume you don't tell them don't waste your time. No, I told them they should think about, you know, what is the thing that, you know, really, really interests them that they really love outside of you know, like their politics and, you know, what impact they want to have in the world. What's the thing that makes them individually, specifically happy? It does no good for me to tell you go study civil rights. You know, law, if the law doesn't, if you're not actually really, really, you know, deeply interested in the law. So I told them to figure that out what that is and to try to direct it in such a way that reflects their desire to make the world a better place. I, I love writing. I love writing independent of the politics, you know, and the way I, you know, and the things I tackle. I, I love the actual, you know, nitty gritty nuts and bolts of it. Um, and I think I would be doing it, you know, even if there were a different political situation, you know, um, but having, you know, found that love, um, you know, I had to, you know, figure out how to, you know, make that engage with the politics of the country. What do you make when you think back to Ferguson a couple of years ago, uh, which in some ways was the kind of event that sparked a whole new era um, about the way we talk and think about these things? What, what, what do you what do you think about Ferguson in hindsight? I mean, I, I think it was like a remarkable moment. Um, I think, you know, on the one hand, you know, you had a situation where, um, you know, the, the official, um, I mean, I think like this shows like the importance of, you know, like uh, um, what a significance, you know, of Barack Obama's time in president because you, as president because you had a situation where, you know, once the investigation was launched, you know, it was found that events did not happen the way, you know, activists and, you know, folks out on the street said it did. And so in, 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 in one, you know, particular case, you know, folks were wrong about that. But, and I don't think another Justice Department would, would have done this, you know, instead of, you know, or in addition to, not even instead of, in addition to, you know, investigating actual events around Michael Brown's death, you know, they, they launched this other investigation to see why it was that this death, this killing, you know, turned into this huge conflagration. And what they found was a police department that basically, you know, was functioning like a kleptocracy. You know, or I guess I say a municipal government that was functioning like a kleptocracy through the use of the, of, of the police department. That, you know, desire or that interest in asking bigger and larger questions, you know, I just think was huge. I think that was like a really, really significant moment. Before we end, I just wanted to ask... Um... Well, first, let me let me just ask you this. It maybe is a way of getting into this. What did you make at the time and in hindsight of when Hillary Clinton made her deplorables remark? I thought, um, A, she was right. Um, I thought that the numbers were on her side. You know, I thought she was very, very clearly correct. Um, because when she says, you know, half of Trump supporters, you know, are X, Y, and Z, I, I thought there were pretty good polling numbers to show that. Um, 
I thought the media, I thought that was the moment more than any moment, and, you know, maybe other people would debate with me on this. You know, maybe there were other moments. I thought that was the moment more than any other moment where the media was just so hypocritical, you know, and how it dealt with her. Listen, you, you can't, on the one hand, dog this person and tell them, you know, oh, you're always lying, you're never being straight up, you're never, you know, giving, you know, a really truthful, you know, uh, impression of yourself. Maybe not lying, but you're always guarded, you're always calculating. And then the person speaks to you, you know, on their truth, and you say, aha, that was a huge political mistake. I mean, come on. It was just like that that sort of bankrupt, you know, uh, amoral political analysis that, you know, folks do. You know, where they do this kind of horse race bullshit. I mean, it's a pinnacle of bullshit, horse race analysis. You know, um, I just, that was a really depressing moment. This is so, a really, really depressing moment. I mean, uh, you know, if you want to have, you know, an argument about, well, yeah, okay, you can say that, but the Democratic Party has X, Y, and Z, fine, let's have that conversation. But this sort of, you know, how's it going to play? She made a misstep, da-da-da-da-da. After, you know, you said it was a misstep to be guarded. I mean, which is it? You know? Well, I, no, this is a strong argument for politicians not listening to these people. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't disagree at all. I mean, I guess the, the question that I've been wrestling with is we have a, you know, we have a country where... However many percentage of people are are very, very racist, uh, and you know, I don't think Hillary's um, estimate was off. We are living in a country where 46% of people voted for a racist, mm-hmm. and or 46% of people who voted voted for a racist. And, you know, at one level, part of me wants to say, well, they're all racist because they voted for a racist, and most of them don't care that he's a racist, even though mm-hmm. it's blatantly obvious. At another level, I don't know, and I'm saying this not as a writer, because I think a writer's job is to say what you think and, you know, whatever, but just as a fellow, as a citizen, that it's really hard to engage with people when you feel like they're racist. And it makes me scared and worried about American democracy, because my my impulse is to say, these people are all racist, screw them. But I also think that you can't really make a society that way, even if it's true. And I'm just wondering if you if you think about that and, and what you make of it. I do. And I think, um, I don't really, I don't actually feel like they're all racist. Screw them. Um, I feel like a disturbing number of them actually are racist. Um, I feel like a larger number actually, you know, are willing to overlook racism. Um, but my deep seated suspicion is that this is the same as it ever was. That, you know, it, it, the, the rabbit racists, let's say, in the Jim Crow South were not the majority. Um, there's a critical mass of rabbit racists. There are people who, you know, are kind of racist. And then there are people who just sort of go along. You know, um, so in that sense, this doesn't feel different to me, necessarily. You know, um, that's why, you know, I, I, you know, it, 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 you know I, it doesn't really require for me, you know, much in the way of mental gymnastics to see somebody voting for Obama and then voting for Trump. That, that is not as confusing to me as it, you know, as the question is often, you know, posed as. Because it doesn't mean you're openly racist. It just means that, you know, having a president of the United States who, you know, is openly racist, you know, that is not an immediately, immediate disqualifier to you. Um, that is a sad statement. You know, but again, you know, you know, taking this conversation back where it already, uh, you know, where it started, um, again, I don't know that that makes, you know, America particularly unique in terms of its, you know, disturbing number of its citizenry holding, you know, views that we would call deplorable. Right. I, um, it just, it, it, it's not just the racism, I guess. It just, there's been so much about, about right. what Trump, 
Yeah, no, and it's it's just just about sort of how to talk to fellow citizens about about things. I mean, I know I know a lot of people have written and thought about this, but it it does it does really feel like we're living in two different worlds, and um, it's it's very hard to conceive of a way in which we can get through to people. And I do think I do think race is at the is at the heart of a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I do too. I do too. You know. Um... And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I think one of the things that I keep in mind, though, is a uh, most people did not vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> That's the first thing, you know. Um, and the second thing is maybe you run like you know, it's just the the the, the virtue of chance, you know, the importance of chance. Maybe if there's no Comey letter, if you you know run that election on a different you know day, you know what I mean. If you run it, you know, a uh, different time, you know, it was a, it was a really really close election. You know, so, um, like, from my perspective, the force of white supremacy cannot be uh, taken out of any sort of equation to understand Donald Trump's election. Does it mean that you necessarily have to get Donald Trump? No, I don't think it means that. I don't think it means that. It doesn't mean that you're doomed to Trump's, you know, forever either. Yeah. Uh, well, hopefully not doomed to Trump's forever. Um, <laughs> Ta-Nehisi Coates, the book is... We were eight years in power, an American tragedy. Thank you so much for coming on, I Have to Ask. Thank you so much, Audrey. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. 